It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello, and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny. This is my show, and today, as there's not much going on in wrestling, well, apart from the Royal Rumble, let's be honest, we don't care about that. Uh, there isn't much going on in wrestling this weekend, um, but yeah, like I said, apart from the Royal Rumble and NXT TakeOver and all that WWE stuff, which we don't do here, um, we have had a window opportunity to bring you the 50th episode of the Beginner's Guide to Japanese Professional Wrestling, and to join me today is my guest, uh, Deathmatch Specialist, Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you, sir? I am doing pretty well. You just... Made me watch two and a half hours of FMW. I can't really complain. <laughs> and again, I just made it sound like you tied me to a chair and it's like full on clockwork orange. You will watch this. Which, to be fair, for some people might not be a bad idea because they should watch it. This is really good. Now, we've been hard on FMW with this 50th anniversary. In fact, to be honest, I think we've watched more FMW than anything else. And there's a reason for that. Not because... It's partly because it's easy to get hold of, because there's always copies of it on YouTube floating around somewhere. However, FMW really tells the stories of professional wrestling in the 1990s so well, because it's a bit like music from Manchester in the 80s. You had this creative genius that oversaw all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, and when the wheels came off, boy, how did they come off and flew in all sorts of different directions. And that basically sums up FMW. FMW is the factory records of the 90s. Um, and as that's one of the reasons why we, we, we keep, I keep going back to it is because it's ace. Because it's, in, it's insane. It's mental. And this card kind of sums up everything that is mental about FMW and how great it is. Would you not agree? I couldn't agree more. I also have never heard a wrestling company refer to 80s music, which I need to hear more of now, I think. Well, well it's not. Have you watched 24-hour party, people? I, I have not. You should watch Twenty Four Hour Party People because it's it's uh, it's basically Steve Coogan playing uh, Tony Wilson. He was the owner and and founder of Factory Records, and it's the story of Joy Division, New Order, and the Happy Mondays, and lots and lots of drugs. Like that epic- sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's you've got to see it, and if you then apply that in your mind and recast Tony Wilson. Is that Sushi Anita? Then you'll get somewhere. That that sounds accurate. There you go. Okay, now there's another reason why I picked this card. Because it opens with a Royal Rumble. And I thought, let's see how FMW do the Royal Rumble. Now, the actual show was held on the 12th of October, 1997. And I do have to say, it looked fairly warm outside on the 12th of October, 1997. No one looked chilly, did they? No, and they also didn't look like they were... Heat like melting under the sun, either thankfully. Like they usually do at the anniversary show, which is in like June. This was at Kawasaki Baseball Stadium. 50,000 people turned up to watch this. 50,000 people to watch some of, some of the most patchy wrestling you'll ever see. However, there's some really good stuff on it as well. Um, but shall we start? Right. Let's start with the Battle Royal. Tetsuhiro Kuroda defeated Alexander Otsukatsuka, Flying Kid Ichihara. That's better known to you as... Um, I just can't remember his name now. Flying Kid Ichihara would end up being... Uh, Ebisan Jr. Onita oh. Jr. 
Yeah, uh, Akito Hichiharu's his real name. Still wrestling to this day. Uh, was trained by Atsushi Nita. Headhunter A and Headhunter B of the Headhunters, unsurprisingly. Hideki Hosaki, Koji Nakagawa, Minoru Tanaga, and Mr. Pogo, and Ricky Fuji and Super Leather in 28 minutes and 49 seconds of... It wasn't exactly blistering pace, was it? Let's be honest. But it, it did what oh. it said in. It was a battle royal. I was going to say, I don't think you can class it as a Royal Rumble if there's only 12 people in it. Well, they did come out at timed intervals. There is that, I suppose. I think my favourite bits were uh, Super Leather forgetting where he was and trying to go for a pinfall and the very blatant Sandman copycat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Who was that? It was uh, Koji Nakagawa. Literally the exact same costume, the exact same haircut with a beer and a kendo stick. I was just like, oh my god. Yeah, absolutely. No perfect rendition of the Sandman. We should point out, in Japanese Battle Royals, pinfalls do count. So Super Leather was well within his rights to try and pin somebody. Usually yeah, I thought that was only the last two. No, it, does work out, it doesn't work out well, usually, because if you try and pin somebody, everyone just piles on top of you, <laughs> and you get pinned next. So there you go. If you, if you have any experience of Japanese Battle Royals, the last thing you do want to do is a small package. Yeah, because they just roll you over. Um, but yeah, no, this was brilliant. Uh, just yeah, like the Sandman copy. Interestingly, the next major event from FMW was their Super Show Showdown with ECW. Oh, please tell me we got a battle of the copycats. I don't think uh, I've seen that I, one. I, I didn't see it either. I saw it on the YouTube on the flick. So I'm going to have a look for that. We may review that soon. Uh, we've got some New Japan stuff to get out of the way in the next couple of weeks, and then we can, then we can come back to it. But yeah. Oh, what else was it? Headhunter A. If it was Headhunter A, you can really difficult to tell to be honest. Spent an awful lot of time of this 28 minutes hanging on to the top rope. Yeah. And I'm surprised no one just kicked him off. Surprisingly live. For a guy who's 400 pounds and six foot two. Um, uh, Alexander Otsaka, he was good. Um, I like, uh, yeah, they're all pretty. Minoru Tanaka, they were, they were all good, really. There was no one bad. Um, but just, yeah, it was Ricky Fuji kicking things off with Headhunter 8 and holding his own. I do like Ricky Fuji. Yeah, he was definitely one of the standouts here. Yes, of, of his uh, bird's nest mullet fame. Can't be missed. Have we anything else to say about the Battle Royal? Um, as opening matches go, it was pretty entertaining. Yes. So 28 uh, minutes was a bit of a drag. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see, this is when you have time starts. This is the problem, isn't it? Yeah. And you also know now why the, the why there were so many uh, battle Rambo's at um, Wrestle Kingdom for so many years. <laughs> Possibly because of this event. What can we do to get everybody on the card? I know. Remember what Anita did in 1997. There's more of that than you think, and it happens a lot later on the card as well. Um, right then, Crusher Madamori and Miss Mongol of your Mad Dog military. They defeated Kaori Nakayama and Mio Sato in 12 minutes and 34 seconds of a fairly gut-busting affair. Yeah, Nakayama and Sato weren't hanging about. They were after it, which is hard work against Madamori and Mongol because they just cheat when they don't get their own way anyway. So this was, this was pretty grim from the babyface's point of view because Madamori and Mongol just kind of stomped their way to, to victory. Having said that, uh, Nakayama and Sato got some good stuff in. What did you think? 
Joe? FMW love their aim. Here's a very obvious size mismatch. Yes. Matches. Like, the second I saw the two teams, I was kind of like, well, this is going one way and one way only. I've got to say, though, Nakiyama was pretty thick set. She was more, far more, like, heel-sized than babyface size. Size. Oh, she definitely gave it back more than I'd have expected, but I think for the most part, it was just Miss Mongol sort of killing the pair of them. <laughs> I was there just thinking... This is one match I'd never volunteer for. I think I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. But it's Mad Dog Military. That's what they did. Stomp, kick, stomp, kick. Sickle, stomp, kick. I don't think we saw the sickle in this one, did we? No, that is more of uh, Shark Sachia's kind of deal. And she was later on on the card. Um, but yes, we will move on to um, the FMW Brass Knuckles Tag Team Championship match. Which was Hisakutsu Oya and Mr. Ganesuke, um, that friend of Hayabusa. And they defeated the world class tag team, Gado and Jado, 15 minutes and 12 seconds. Yes, that world class tag team. Yes, the lead booker of New Japan Pro Wrestling and his best mate, Master Hita Jado. The manager of Jay White, Gado, that guy. Yes, he was an FMW wrestler and one of the best tag teams that ever lived were. Ghetto and Jedo, the world-class tag team. Having said that, Hisaki Warrior and Mr. Ganescape were not hanging about either. They were pretty handy. What did you think of this one, John? It's always weird seeing um, Jedo and Gedo before like the New Japan stuff because they look so much different and they act so like differently. They're not... I mean, obviously, they're not heels in this instance where they're just hitting people with kendo sticks and brass knuckles and then getting dragged around by the beard. But, like, I genuinely never realised just how good a tag team they actually were until I saw them in action here. Yeah, they, they were something else. And as people forget, or I've tried to remind people as much as I possibly can, Ghetto and Jeddo worked for everybody. Not just, like, you know, a few companies. Ghetto started in All Japan and Jeddo started in New Japan. They worked for NOAA. They worked for All Japan. They worked for FMW. They worked for IWA. They worked for WIC. They worked for Wrestling and Romance. They worked for WCW, ECW, UWA in Mexico, and Michinoku Pro and UWA in Mexico, in Japan. They literally worked for every wrestling promotion on Earth except for the WWE. So when it comes back to being bookers, they have literally an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that happened in professional wrestling in the last 30 years. You know, when Jado says, 30 years this business, he means it in a very positive light because it's given him all of this knowledge that he can give to other people in Bullet Club at the moment, but previously in Chaos, and all of those factions he's worked with, and all of that booking and road agency he's done has come from everything he's done in his private wrestling career. And this was a perfect example of how good the world-class tag team were. I honestly expected them to come out with the win from this, just given everything they managed to pull off on, especially Ganesuke. They had him down so many times, I'm like, right, this is it, they've got this. <laughs> oh, no. This was the card of false finishes, wasn't it? Like every match is like six or seven false finishes. I think you got six or seven false finishes in the main event alone. Oh, God, I. Yeah, they were really going for it. It was a bit mental. I think I also stand by the fact that Oya has the most unfortunate haircut I think I've ever seen on a wrestler. <laughs> Would you care to explain it? As we do like our hair talk here on the Trooping Show. 
Well, when I remember the last time we did an FMW show, he was fighting Hayabusa. Was it Hayabusa he was fighting? Mm. And he just looks like someone's dad. It's like, oh yeah, we've we thought we'd pick someone from the crowd at random. Here's Ricky Chan's dad. He's going to fight <laughs> Hayabusa. But then, because he's got like this really far back, like receding hairline with the deepest cut ever, it kind of just looks like someone's attacked him with a weed whacker. And it's never recovered. Yeah. And then Gansuke doesn't help because he's got this awful mullet combo, blonde mullet thing going on. Still has it to this day. He's dyed it black now. He's gone back to his natural hair colour. But it, it was, there was a none more 80s, 90s wrestler than Mr. Gansuke. I don't think. Oh, I don't. I think I agree there. <laughs> yeah. It, he, he was perfect for the era. Um, and he'd just triumphantly come back after having a spell with IWJ Japan. Um, he was the protege of Tarzan Goto and skipped oh. over to WWE when Tarzan made his jump. Aya was an FMW regular and he came back and joined the regular army in FMW. Gedo and Jedo had just come from wrestling and romance where uh, they had been a brilliant, brilliant six-man tag team with Hiromochi Fuyuki, who we'll see later on in this card. And that's where kind of they built their international reputation as, you know, War was a big company. It was Jinichiro Tenru's company. They had probably their longest and most extended run of any time period in that company up until that point before they stuck with it, stuck with FMW right pretty much up until the end of the company in 2001. So um, Ghetto and Jedo were kind of big stars. They were a big deal at this point. And you're right. It's kind of a bit of a surprise that Oya and Genesuke successfully defended their titles. Right then, move on to the next match, which is the FMW Independent Women's and WWA Women's title match, which was vacant. There are reasons for that. Megumi Kudo had retired and vacated the belts. Now, we did say we'd go back to the anniversary show and look at it. We haven't had chance yet, and I couldn't really find it. So we will have a look at the anniversary show. But there's more interesting things. This one kind of matched in with the feel of what was going on this weekend because of the Battle Royal. Uh, but we'll talk about this match now, and we will go to the anniversary show at some other point. Now, Aja Kong was mates with Megumi Kudo, and obviously Shark had a massive feud with Megumi as she went out of the business, and Shark was the number one contender. She was the biggest female star in the company, and they really needed someone big for her to have a big match against. You know, Mio Aseto, pardon me, Mio Aseto, as cool as she was, it wasn't going to make the big, like, main event match that they needed this title to be, to give Shark some kind of credibility as the new champion. So, Aja was no longer WWWA women's champion in, in El Japan women. And FMW and AJW had a talent swap agreement. So they could have Shark whenever they wanted. And they could have Aja whenever she wanted. Aja was known to be a longtime friend of Megumi Kudos and Combat Toyotas. And so she came into FMW to defend the honor of the AJW Dojo and her longstanding friends. And Shark and Aja, and bear in mind that Aja is still one of the scariest people in professional wrestling to this day proceeded to beat the living hell out of each other for 20, for 18 minutes and 25 seconds. There are more violent wrestling matches than this. Not many, though. And this was violence of the highest order. It was thrilling. It put you on the edge of your seat. And there was blood everywhere. So the right man to talk about it is John Dinsdale. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen many more like brutal chair shots than I have in this match. He was literally just picking them up and throwing them at each other. Yeah. It's like, whenever Kong and 
shark were in the ring they were just like right we'll take these shots to the head any of the goons on the outside getting attacked oh we'll get our arms up we need to save ourselves we can't stand this uh there is always kind of like a bit of pressure on the matches that are interpromotional in this time period especially for the women like you know as you still got a safe face despite the fact she's going to lose and that's the reason why my my dog military interferes so much in this matchup to give Aja some face saving time but she still had to bleed like a stuck pig to get this match over. <laughs> yeah, she was. She spent a lot of time getting cut up with the um, sickle. Yeah, she did, and she's so tough. And it barely, it barely slowed her down. Let's be honest. She just kept banging in. That's it. It's not the best Argy Kong match. There are better wrestling matches involving Argy Kong in this time period. However, this wasn't a match though. It was a fight. Yes, this was a, this was a whole different set of drama and thrilling, like psycho drama uh, between them. Uh, and it was a street fight as well. They did come dressed to street fight. There was jeans and combats and t-shirts. It was a bit brutal. Um, and she brought the weapon of her own demise as well to the ring because she came out with the um, bread box and a fire extinguisher. Yeah, she never uh, got to use either of them. No, Aja always brought like uh, waste paper baskets to the ringside as per usual. This time she brought a fire extinguisher with her, which was a bit of a a bit of a thing against Shark Tashia because Shark always had uh, avail- she was taught by Mr. Pogo how to throw a fireball you see so it was the answer to the fireball however Miss Mongol got hold of it created a smoke screen where Mad Dog Military beat people up and I don't know why anyone hasn't used this since mainly because they're outside and they get away with it but once the smoke had cleared Arju was in trouble yeah fireball which Bye. is Still such an underutilized method of finishing matches. It is a bit the chic in 1968, though, Detroit. I think the only time I've ever seen, like, fireballs now is in MLW. Yeah, it's very Jerry Lawler. And MLW, let's be honest, is very Jerry Lawler. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be fair, it yeah. still didn't quite match uh, Terry Funk's from the anniversary show. No, true. True. Terry is Terry is a is a genius of professional wrestling, and to be honest with you, he's in the next match. Um, yeah. So we should we should segue across. What there. a segue! There you go. Terry Funk has wrestled Hiromichi Fuyuki as the aforementioned wrestler from War. Fuyuki had an interesting career, and I should explain a little more about him because he comes on to be a big feature of FMW in the coming years. Actually, to be honest with you. Ends up being lead booker for the country company. Sadly passed away of cancer some years ago, not long after FMW closed down. However, he was pretty much a jobber to the stars in all Japan pro wrestling. He was not Giant Baba's favorite son. So when Jinichiro Tenryu went off to form Super World Sports in 1990, he was like, I'll be having me some of that, and bodged off to us at SWS. Stuck with him through war uh, and formed the tag team Megado and Jado, and they were kind of a mini faction within war. Had a brilliant feud with the UWF after the um, cross-promotional war with New Japan and UWF ended. There was a cross-promotional war between War and the UWF, of which they were the lead faction. Um, and then he gets done with you with the War and picks up a job in FMW, where he is kind of portrayed as this outsider coming in. And there's a big charity dinner where Onita's at, and he's very nice to Onita. And but he comes in as championing the ways of the FMW 
faithful. That's what he's there for. You know, he's kind of like he's pro Japanese pro wrestling. Now, at the time, Terry Funk has this faction called Funkin' Army, the Funkin' Army, which is, funnily enough, <laughs> a group of Gaijins who all band together because the they feel like they're getting, of wrestling. They're the Funk Masters of Wrestling, who they believe they're getting a raw deal from the Japanese wrestling companies. Stop me if you've heard this before. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, there's the, uh, the Funk Masters of Wrestling. They're there together. And Terry Funk is still leading them. And he's defending his old NWA Texas title in a loser leaves FMW matchup. Now, as you probably guessed from my commentary there, Fuyuki did not actually leave FMW. <laughs> However, there was a lot of tension in this matchup. And Fuyuki was over as a babyface. And Funk was just, he's freaking Terry Funk. So, of course, he's over. Um, and this was not half bad. I think Fuyuki gets a bit of a bad rap. I don't think he's half as bad as people make him out to be. What are your thoughts on this, John? This felt like the inspiration for most of Goto's Wrestle Kingdom matches because Terry Funk got beaten to a pulp and then managed to come back from it. Yeah, it's very influential. But it was, that was a kind of Funk moment, heel or face. He was getting the hell beat of asking so he could come back. I think <laughs> pretty much busted open in the first minute of it because Fuyuki just went after him with a chair. Yeah, Which... quite, quite a possibility. But I get what you mean about the tension as well because... You could see every time they sort of slightly panned away from the ring that near enough everyone in that stadium was on edge to sort of like, oh, when's this going to, what's coming next? Yeah, it's it's really interesting kind of like vibe to it. And it, it's interesting to see what the, what they were after because obviously Terry Funk's like still a massive star in FMW and in Japan in general. Kind of came back to FMW under protest and they gave him a big angle to work with. And his job was to get Fuyuki over, and that's what he did. Even though Fuyuki lost, he was still a big character. You also see the Funk Masters of Wrestling come in to run in, the Headhunters come in to help their boss out. Victor Quinones is down ringside, and he's there to help his boss out. And they actually, and Fuyuki actually gets saved by Ghetto and Jeddo, but they aren't quite good enough. And there was a huge pop for Ghetto and Jeddo when they come down to make the save as well, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, they've, been, they've been heels in... WAR for a long while so it was interesting to see them get a baby face response in FMW Must admit the definite sort of it's not just these two fighting both factions are going to try and sort of save each other as well definitely added to it especially yeah. when like the Funk Masters of Wrestling were all just like right this is it Funk's getting his ass kicked let's save him <laughs> but yeah a really interesting match it really tells you how to do faction wrestling properly and how to use factions to your advantage. Right then, uh, at this point, at Sushi Nita had had quite a bit of time off. And with Kumi Kudo retiring, FMW was in sore need of a main event star, and at Sushi Nita came back, thus gaining the name Mr. Liar, because he always lied about his retirement. He's had about three <laughs> retirements since, by the way, and is still wrestling occasionally. He's fighting people... Chris Brooks in an exploding barbed wire match, I think, in <laughs> March, which I cannot wait to see. Oh, Chris. Chris Brooks living his best life, isn't he? Really is. Oh, let's go tag in the mixed tag tournament in BJW with one of my favourite wrestlers. Let's see if they'll be out for that. Yeah, they would. There you go. It's just Chris Brooks. I just loved watching um, a 55-minute long technically death match he did with um, how do I say this? Miyato Matsumoto, I believe it was. Yeah. In um, 
GKPW. It's the only match on the card, and they were running alongside Wrestle, like alongside Wrestle Kingdom, and I think it had about seven rule changes as time <laughs> went because they did like sumo fights, a boxing match. Drew Parker got used as a dartboard. There was <laughs> there was a clown that came out and gave treats to people. There was a Jushin Thunder Liger cosplayer that got beaten up by a commentator, and then it for the last twenty minutes it just became a pure death match because Matsumoto just wanted to kill Chris. And then, then the next night he was at Wrestle Kingdom with Session Moth Martina. Yeah. Trying to talking with uh Renee Young. <laughs> Wrestling. <laughs> it's it's mad. It is. And this is see this is the kind of card that started this kind of cross pollination thing off. And speaking of which this is a perfect example of this. Big Van Vader defeats Ken Shamrock by knockout in 7 minutes and 17 seconds in an ultimate rules steel cage match, which was essentially UFC rules. Bear in mind it's 1997. Ken Shamrock and Leon Vader White are both contracted to WWE. So what are they doing here then? Well, as we were talking about before, Anita had spent his time off traveling the world and talking to other wrestling promoters, including one Vincent Kennedy McMahon. He was like, yeah, you can have whoever you want. I guess he was much more reasonable back then. Uh, well, I think as well, Wally Yamaguchi, who's a longtime friend of Anita and you know former FMW referee, was in Kai and Tai at the same time. So I think I think he had an in, to be honest. Oh, yeah, definitely. And if you look at independent Japanese wrestling in the 1990s, you don't go very far without Wally Yamaguchi. So um, I think that's basically where they were at. And when Wally Wally kind of like put it, clued in, it was come full come come to full fruition in 1999 when Mr. Ganeske would wrestle Hayabusa with Shawn Michaels, a special guest referee. That is a match I've never seen that I now need to dig out. You you need to dig it out purely for the promos in the run-up to the match, where Ganeske wrestled at Currican Hall with Hayabusa in a loser-takes-a-firecracker-up-the-arse match. (laughs) And Hayabusa did indeed, to his credit, have a firecracker placed in his anus, and it was set fire to. Jesus Christ. Yes. That is amazing. In his anus. Anyway. Yeah, Vader and Shamrock. In This was essentially the match they had at the King of the Ring the previous year. The King of the Ring where Steve Austin became friggin' Steve Austin. Um, the, that was kind of a gentle opener for Shamrock as a pay-per-view start. Because obviously his debut was the Steve Austin-Bret Hart submission match where he was special guest referee. And then Shamrock uh, had this match with Vader. There was a big feud to start them off. And Vader was really the perfect guy with Shamrock to get started because Big Leon, you couldn't hurt Big Leon. You kept hitting him, he was fine. And also, Leon had experience of wrestling, shoot-style wrestling before because obviously he was a former UWFI champion. He was the perfect guy to kind of like break Shamrock in. And Asushi Nita saw that match at... um, King of the Ring, and it was kind of ideal for UWF, sorry, FMW, Frontier Martial Arts Wrestling. And they hadn't had anything like that for quite some time. So clearly, a deal was made. And uh, Big Leon, who had not wrestled in Japan, I don't think, since his time in UWFI at that point, and Shamrock, who was a big name for Pancras and PWFG before that, so he, had, he was a known quantity in Japan. And that's what got them third from the end of the card on one of the biggest cards in pro wrestling history, actually. So it was not a bad outing. The actual match itself left a few things to be desired because Ken really couldn't 
you know, hadn't really got the hang of the WWE style by that point, but this was kind of a big swing and hope job, and it was over fairly quickly. Other than that, it, it was all right. I, I can't really say an awful lot about it. It wasn't terrible. What did no, you think? I just enjoyed watching Vader hit people. Yeah. It's always and... been a favorite of mine. It's just like, Sorry, it's like when you said about Vader breaking him in. I, I remember the famous story where it's on a WWE or WWF at the time match and um, Shamrock's going too hard, so Vader just nearly knocks him out and just soften up. <laughs> you see, that's it. Shamrock was used to like throwing Minoru Suzuki around. <laughs> and Minoru would hit you if you didn't hit him hard enough. Exactly. So, yeah, whereas like, you know, Vader was like, yeah, calm down a lot. And I can gen- take this, but you, no one else will. No, that's the thing. See, there was, there's lots of rumours like that. You see, receipts like that don't happen in WWE anymore. As explained in the film Fighting With My Family. Which I Paige, watched last week. Ironic timing. Paige used to like try and give receipts in training and she got told off for it because that's not the WWE way of doing things. And to be honest, from a HR point of view, it's a nightmare, so don't, no. However, back in the day, I remember stories of like, uh, was it Stefan Grenier, the French Canadians? Them guys? Yeah. yeah. They were wrestling the Dudleys some in God, some godforsaken hole where there was no crowd. And the the Dudleys kind of like roughed them up a bit. And they were like, what's wrong? And they were like, you're not trying hard enough. They said, but there's only 2,000 people here. And their Bubba's response was, Next week will be three. Next time we come back, we want three thousand people here. You know when we can slow down? When there's ten thousand people here. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah. <laughs> but equally, apparently, they tried it. They tried it on with the Dudleys, which is one team you definitely do not try it on with. No. Uh, you've got a thick ear for the particular. You know, I'm not a big fan of Bubba Ray and Devon, and they, but I'm, I'm sure they have very direct training approaches in such situations. Doesn't happen anymore. Um, thankfully, in some cases, to be honest with you, less abusive practices. That's what we like to see. Pretty sure this was just a match full of receipts, though, because it was kind of like bang, bam. I just, of... I just think they were just one shot shooting because it's the safest way of going about it. You mm-hmm. know, Shamrock's used to a shoot environment. Uh, Pancras has been like the, the closest to professional wrestling he'd been in was PWFG, which was a semi shoot environment anyway. He hadn't actually been in a pro wrestling ring for a good 10 years before that. So, yeah, it's kind of the safest thing to do. It's just like, keep hitting me. We'll see how we go. So there you I'm go. I'm not sure if this match ended the way it was supposed to, because it looked like Shamrock was going to get back up, and then the ref was just like, nope, you're dead. Stop. Yeah. He was also telling Vader that he wasn't allowed to like touch the cage to break a hold, yet Shamrock did it like four or five times. I just remember at one point, Vader fell against the cage, and it nearly toppled over. I was just kind of like, well, they didn't secure that down very well now, did they? No, they didn't. But, you know, the next match was going to be a regular match, so I don't know what the hell they were playing at, to be honest with you, but there you go. Yeah. But the next match was indeed a regular match. It was Masato Tanaka, and he defeated the Gladiator for, that would be your Mike Awesome, the owner of the greatest mullet in professional wrestling history. Uh, he, they defeat, he defeated the, Mike Awesome for the FMW Brass Knuckles and FMW Independent Heavyweight Championship match. This was a straight wrestling match, and you forget how good these two were together. It was a marriage made in heaven. The short and stocky underdog versus the overpowering scientific wrestling genius. Because Mike Awesome could literally do anything you wanted in a professional wrestling ring. He could fly, he could power move, he could mat wrestle, he could shoot style, 
He could brawl. He was a Swiss army knife of professional wrestling. And Masato Tanaka was incredibly determined and had a neck like a bulldog. Not an actual bulldog's neck, like an actual bulldog. So, yeah, it was just the perfect pairing. And Tanaka gets the emotional victory and takes the championship in 15 minutes and 18 seconds with an absolutely brutal table powerbomb, where I think, well, the first time, the story had always been that Tanaka ended up going through a table and losing the championship match. Well, this time Tanaka got awesome over the top rope and through a table in a, a best described as a glancing blow towards the table as he landed rather luckily on his shoulders. And yeah. then when he landed, when he got up, they didn't break his neck. Um, and this essentially is what they played out in ECW. It was the same feud with the same matches and the same finishes 12 months later, because obviously the ECW guys haven't seen, the, have seen those matches. So, yeah, it was something that set something in motion. What do you think of this, John? This was my favourite match on the card, to be honest. It I had, would agree. Yeah. It had the tension, the spots, and as you said, Mike Awesome is one of the best they'll probably ever be because he basically dragged Tanaka around for about 10 of those 15 minutes or so and then basically was like right now's your time to shine kill me yeah it was the shine spots were just ace and it just works so well and the two good storytellers and Tanaka knows how to connect with that audience because he doesn't look that much different from the guys in the audience he looks like a a machine operator from Kawasaki. You know I'd I mean? also love to know what his head's made out of because he took about four of those like straight table shots to the head and I'm just kind of like, how did the first one barely Not... do anything? Yeah. It, it just it just made a different stuff. He's still wrestling, he's still wrestling now. Yeah, he's wrestling gonna, the... he's gonna match up against uh, Matthew Justice at the one of the upcoming GCW Japan shows. And yeah. Justice is basically trying to be Tanaka 2.0, so they're probably just going to hit each other the, over the head with chairs for about 10 minutes. Just incense. And just insensible kind of wrestling. It's just Tanaka's just awesome. It's your Yes. But well worth seeking out the match. The cage match guys gave it 7.18, and even old Melts back in the day gave it four and a quarter stars. So, it's you know. just the perfect example of a well done wrestling match. A wildly acclaimed wrestling match without the bells and whistles of explosions and barbed wire, which is yet to come. Uh, speaking of a well-put-together wrestling match, Kenta Kobashi and Mayunuke Mossman defeated Hayabusa and Jinshe Sinzaki in 21 minutes and 30 seconds of a match the live crowd thoroughly enjoyed. But because Gayora TV had a contract with Kenta Kobayashi and Mayunuke Mossman because they were in Noah, sorry, uh, we can't see this wrestling, one. We can't see it unless someone's got a handheld of it somewhere. And it sounds like it would have been a corker as well. We can tell I love you what Kent Kabashi matches. Yeah. Kabashi and Mossman against Hayabusa and Shinzaki would have been ace. Kayabusa and Shinzaki by this point were like the dream tag team. They were the ones that they had that brilliant wrestling match at, uh, at ECW uh oh, the summer pay-per-view in ninety-eight the following year against uh Rob Van Dam and Sabu, which was just absolutely insane it kind of like predated what lucha brothers and the young books have been doing the last year in aew and lax and the lucha brothers in impact wrestling before that it was purely spot driven pro wrestling it was the first time i really saw pure spot driven wrestling like a high spot wrestling but i've never really seen anything like it since that's that good it kind of like took all of the it would they were there there was an expectation in that match in fact they chopped it because it was too long for the dvd um, there was an expectation in that match that 
you know, you were going to see the craziest shit in pro wrestling, and they they kept the shit, crazy shit in. You know, they they got their stuff in. That's what it's one of did. those matches where you watch it and you just like someone's going to die part way through this. Yes, because it was that it was all it was literally no one. There was no headlocks. There was <laughs> there was no lice rolling wrist locks. It was all aerial maneuvers for twenty five minutes. And I can imagine this wouldn't have been that, but it wouldn't have been far off. I'd have loved to read Jim Cornette's reaction to that. You're killing yep. the business. He liked he liked Kabashi though, so maybe. Yeah, true. We see this is the thing, and we have had this conversation before. You know, if you go back to Ricky Starr, right? Have you heard of Ricky Starr, John? Yeah. Yeah, Ricky Starr was a wrestler from Dallas in the 1950s. Ended his career in the UK. Was a major draw for joint promotions and for the old big time wrestling in Dallas. And he was doing just the same aerial stuff. He would, his character was that of a ballet dancer. And instead of, but instead of like pushing homophobic buttons, he used his ballet in a uh, positive sense and used it as a tactical advantage. He used to wrestle in ballet pumps. And, you know, he would have flowers at the beginning of the match and he'd wear ballet tights. And it was all very much pomp and circumstance. But he was one of the most intelligent professional wrestlers you ever came across. He was very uh introverted man he was he was an absolute superstar and but from what i understand his professional wrestling uh career was nothing like his personal life and in the end he kind of like shied away from it but equally he was doing backflips and he was doing aerial stuff and rolling stuff long before like 30 years before anybody did a moonsault he was doing all the high flying stuff you could possibly imagine and it didn't ruin the business French professional wrestlers are known for their high-flying skills back in the 1960s and 50s. They were used to doing stuff off the top rope. Obviously, Lucha Libre. But they were nobody ruined the business. <laughs> you know, the business is still going, and it will still go, just because you don't like it. So you couldn't have, I couldn't have worded that better. I've always sort of been under the impression it's like, wrestling isn't one thing it's about 60 million different things rolled into one sort of blanket term there's always going to be something for someone even if that's two people dressed as bill and ben from some <laughs> fighting another sort of two people in other cartoon costumes there will be a market for it the yeah, business I... can't die it just diversifies yeah i mean fmw is a classic reason of why you shouldn't do too much too soon don't get me wrong and it also gives you many other lessons of not building your company around one major star or even two or three major stars and always having an ace up your sleeve, as it were, quite literally, try and find your next ace whilst your current ace is on top. It was, it was a good example of how to make wrestling too short term. There are lots of flaws with FMW, but equally, they put 50,000 people in a building with no television. So... Yeah, yeah. There you go. It's, you know, they made money, hand over fist. Well, all right, Anita made money, hand over fist. Not anyone else, but Edith. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, you should get to that main event, which did, fe did feature the returning, and may I say, very cut and lean looking at Sushi Anita rather than his classic pot-bellied look. He did spend his time off uh, retirement from the ring um, getting fit and having threesomes with government officials, but mainly getting fit. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Presumably, so he could have the threesome with the uh, porn actress and the government official. But anyway, because, yeah. I, and Anissa was one of those guys, apparently slept with over a thousand women. I, I find this hard to believe. 
I mean, you know. I, I don't do... know if Ric Flair managed it. I think Onita would. Uh, to be fair, Onita's better looking than Flair. Exactly, so it's more believable. Yeah, uh, yeah, I could do that. You know, and he was like a spokesman for sexual health for the Japanese government. So there's a reason for that, I think. So yeah, I could, yeah. I could... We're getting off uh, topic here. Yeah. Anyway, but it's kind of arresting. Asushi Nita returns to fight Wing Kanemura for Star Ace of Wing. Now, last time me and you talked, we looked at some Wing shows where Kanemura was the ace of the company and the big baby face in the company. And this would be a no-rope, exploding barbed wire, exploding cage, double hell death match. Because, because wrestling match names aren't long enough. No, in FMW they certainly well. Double hell because there was two hells. There was the exploding barbed wire and the time bomb. Um, surprisingly, this one went after the time bomb. I'll tell you what really struck me watching this match. Like, if you watch early Onita matches... He really sells everything. The barbed wire, like the big spots you expect like to sell. Whereas in this, he's just so he's slightly jaded. And I think that's partly because he's just used to it and he isn't as flinchy as he used to be. And it's also because they've done everything and it's starting to get to the point, unless he actually no sells things a bit more, he doesn't look as tough. He doesn't look as like he's learned anything from his previous experience. Which I thought it's either one of two things. It's either a bit of laziness creeping in because he's done everything. Or it's actual character development because he kind of brushes off these massive bumps into the bar, exploding barbed wire. I don't yeah, know. I see what you mean. I was sort of there, like, he's just gone into that. Why? What? He's up already? What the hell? Yeah. yeah whereas, like, when he was wrestling, like, uh, Anita, well, sorry, when he was wrestling, like, Terry Funk, or he was wrestling, like, um, Ayabusa, he was much more kind of like he would take so much longer to sell the barbed wire spots he would take so much longer to sell the big bumps you know and I think I, it's kind of six of one half a dozen the other I can understand why he did it like if it was a, a distinct choice then yes or was it just laziness <laughs> do you see yeah, what I mean it, especially given the type of person Onita is it's very difficult to decide either way yeah it's um it, yeah, it's it. Mm, I'm not convinced it was a personal choice, but it worked in this particular case. But it did seem like the match moved moved on a lot, a lot quicker, moved on a lot more uh, smoother. It, it felt more like a regular professional wrestling match. But then again, Kanemura and Nita at this point were the two most experienced in this style of professional wrestling. It also had the massive stipulation uh, hanging over its head that um, should Wing Kanemura lose, then Wing would have to leave and break up, or or Nita would retire for the probably second or third time at this point. <laughs> so I suppose that could that could also be another reason why Nita was just like, right, I can't afford to sell these. I've got to bloody win this, so I don't have to retire for the third time. Yes, I can understand that. There was a bit more to uh, two things, I think, overall. Uh, trying to put things a bit closer together, really. And um, I don't know. It works, though. The match worked. It was a lot more fun. It was I a very brisk 17 minutes. Yes, it kicked along at a nice old pace. And a lot of the times, these matches tend to be quite slow. Um, it, which, you know, for obvious reasons, because they're like blowing each other up. It wasn't so, even a 
big delay before the first sort of exploding barbed wire spot in this one. No, I was pretty much headlock, headlock, and bang straight into it. And they were off and running. There's also a lot of just Ornita hitting Kanemura. Yeah, Kanemura with power bombs. Or thunder fire bombs, yeah. sorry. And then thunder kick out. Power bombs is the, yeah. It's, I think uh, you're calling it the sandbag bomb because it just looks like your opponent's sandbagging you the whole time. Ganzo bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what you want to go up for that. You know what's going to happen. It's going to like, yeah, it's, it's not pleasant landing on your back of your head and your shoulders, to be honest. But yeah, Thunderfire Powerbomb, it, it was like no Cell City as well. There was about six or seven kickouts of each Powerbomb that was delivered by Kanemura and by Anita. But it was a thrilling match. The crowd were definitely into it. There was a lot of human drama there. I just think, given the people involved, it could have been slightly better. It was never going to be great, because Anita had obviously slowed down a bit, but he kind of lost weight, and you kind of expected him to move a bit quicker, and he didn't really. Yeah. Yeah, there was more to it. I think there could have been more to it than there was. But yes, it worked for me. Anita did something I didn't expect either, considering the sort of stakes on offer he protected um, Kanemura when the time bomb went off. Oh, no, that was standard. I can completely... I could see what, what he did with that. That was actually standard. I know he did it with Hayabusa yes, back at the also, um, retirement he also, match. He also did it with Mr. Pogo and Terry Funk as well. Oh, I guess he just doesn't like people taking time bombs. No, that's it. He what a guy. Like, yeah. He's, uh, yeah. He's like, you know, save everybody. And then there would be a big fallout afterwards. All right, Terry Funk was like, thank you for saving me, but you still didn't beat me in my match, and I want to wrestle you in my match. Next time we wrestle in my match. That was his promo. But yeah, it was an interesting time, though, certainly. And uh, an interesting matchup. What were your thoughts overall on the card in FMW in 1997? Because it looked very much different to the FMW we saw in 1996. Definitely. I don't know, this felt, this felt like a really good show, just from sort of, well... Yeah, the Rumble was good enough as well. It It's one of those cards where it's got everything. There's something there for almost everyone, and everything it does, it does well. Like, yeah, I think... Yeah, I'd agree with that. Sure. I think the fallout from this was more sort of what people remember it for, though, because this was when um, Onita created... Was it Zen, they were called? Yeah. And... A new sort of feud came along. Do you want to explain a bit more with the feud? Where is it? Yeah, because he, he was sort of best mates with most of the wing people by then, so he sort of created another group and sort of went after um, FMW. Yeah, like a heel turn kind of deal. Which would kind of be like Nick Gage turning on GCW at this point. Yeah. Just, you wouldn't think it possible. Well, I mean, it's also, it's like the, his final run with FMW as well. He kind of like moved away from the company in 98 because he wanted to go on to pass his new. So it's kind of like the like, grand hurrah for FMW as an Anita company. And he wasn't really in charge anymore. He, they didn't really need him. This was at the point where they'd grown quite a bit without him being around, and it was a very different company without him being there. But yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting take on FMW at that particular time. It's kind of a snapshot of what's going on in the company, and they're still financially successful, and they're still having resounding successes like this. 
But you look at the cards they were putting in the year before, and they were lucky to get 2,000 in the hole. 50,000, That was, they needed a need to give it that spark. Definitely. Yeah, especially after the loss of Kudo as well. When Kudo retired, that kind of like threw a damper on everything. There you go. You know one thing I've never understood about FMW? Mm-hmm. Why was Mike Awesome called the Gladiator? Just his name. That's it. You know, it's like um, there's lots of people that had names in Japan that were never used anywhere else. There was Boulder yeah. from the last right. one. There was Boulder from the last one. What oh, was it? Horace Boulder or something from Horace the last Boulder. one we watched? Yeah, Hulk Hogan's nephew, Horace Boulder. <laughs> Which, again, I, just, I didn't recognize the name until I saw the person in the ring and I was just like, oh. Actually, a better wrestler than his uncle. Um, and also, he ended up in WCW as just Horace. See, that's where I remembered it. And then I was just kind of like, where'd Boulder come from? I don't know. Just the, Hor- Horace Bollier was, was the name, ring name he used in WCW. It's just, I mean, just some of them. I mean, some of them work really well. The old British wrestler, Pete Roberts from the 1970s, 80s, went to all Japan. A giant baba named him Super Destroyer, Pete Roberts, which is the best wrestling name ever. That That's definitely one of the best. It also yeah. sounds like the next incarnation we're going to see of the Canadian Destroyer. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it was a follow-on from Dick Byatt, the Destroyer. What can we? What's a better than the Destroyer? Super Destroyer, Pete Roberts. It was Ted DiBiase's tag partner. This is yeah. really bizarre. It's like a bizarre world of professional wrestling. Again, it's like he'd go off to Japan and he'd be the million dollar man's tag team partner and then come back and wrestle um, Wayne Bridges in Putney. (laughs) (laughs) The wonderful world of professional wrestling. It shows like this where you really see the sort of inspiration FMW's had on companies around the sort of world, even like to this day. Oh yeah, definitely. Bullet Club is infinitely designed from you know the the mold of the punk wrestling army the, the you know that that's definitely down to Jado and Gado. Yes, definitely they saw it. Jado and Gado were part of big factions in FMW as well. Um, there's there's all sorts of things that you know FMW had major influences on. Obviously, like BJW is kind of very influenced by FMW right now and always has been. You know the the garbage wrestling, if you will, if you will, I know you probably be brilliant that kind of um, description, but certainly that kind of violence is still prevalent in professional wrestling today. Maybe not with as much gusto, but stardom still run exploding barbed wire bat matches. Um, I watched one um, not so long ago. It was Hiroyo Matsumoto versus Nanai. Kahashi. Oh. Yeah, they were just fighting it was um, an outdoor event exploding yeah. barbed wire match and a blast table it was brilliant the recently balded nanai takahashi because she lost all lost her hair versus her match the kamakiri death match oh wow because seed lining is not the draw that stardom was because it hasn't got the roster and she's pulling everything out to make sure seed lining makes a living including losing her hair she nearly broke her neck two years ago she did a senton bomb off the top of a ladder in the middle of the ring, didn't have enough space to roll properly, and ended up with six months off. Jesus. Yes. No, no, I, remember, I remember nearly... watching that match and just thinking, bloody hell. Yeah, it, I think it's, I don't know, uh, partly I think Nanai wants to get like all the, the stuff she ever wants to do in wrestling in before she retires, and partly because I think she just needs to make a living, and she can't get 
a job with the big Joshi companies anymore because she's kind of been blackballed a bit. You know, Sendai girls will do matches with Seed Line and a few other people will, but it's kind of like Stardom don't want to know. And, you know, so if you don't have like the connection with Stardom or the connection with Oz Academy, which she's kind of like blackballed from, ain't going to happen, is it? Man, the Joshi world's a lot more cutthroat than I thought it was. Oh, yeah. It's all girls together to an extent. <laughs> you know, it's like Yoshiko, who works with Seed Lining, is a former Oz Academy champion. But Nanice never seems to to tackle on there for some reason. But there was also a, there was also a lot of one of the reasons why Asuka never wrestled for Stardom, even though Io Shirai, one of her best mates, wrestled for Stardom, was there was a bad blood between Nana Takashi and Asuka when she was Kana. There's all sorts of stuff goes off that I only find out about years later because <laughs> no one talks about it. It's a proper it sounds job. like one of the best types of rabbit holes to fall down, to be honest. Oh, it is. It's it's mental. It really is. It's like Joshi. Joshi politics is the most cutthroat politics in all of wrestling. Absolutely. I just remember a lot of the time you had bad blood between IWA Japan women's wrestlers and the women's wrestlers of other companies because yeah. they're all scared of them. Oh, uh, yeah. There's there's all sorts of stuff like that. Like back in the nineties, like Reggie Bennett at Dream Slam. No, not Reggie Bennett at. at the, the egg dome when she was wrestling Chigasaw Nagaya was supposed to be a semi-shoot because Chigasaw went off and started shooting on Reggie and Reggie wasn't having any of it because Reggie was twice the size of Chigasaw Nagaya <laughs> but she couldn't like belt around a living legend <laughs> so there's you know there's all sorts of stuff that went off and it's because of cross-promotional stuff and you know the back and forth of Joshi Puresu there's always a chip on the side if you, you watch the FMW girls when they're in cross-promotional matches like especially Combat Toyota and Megumi Kudo, they have chips on their shoulders because they didn't get jobs with AJW, and they are out to prove that they were good enough to be in AJW. And they probably those two especially probably put on some of the best women's death matches that exists. They put on some of the best women's wrestling matches that ever existed. You know, it's, they were that good. They put on some of the greatest wrestling matches I've ever seen. You know, it's just. Just the way the cookie crumbled, but politics is politics, and Joshi politics is more politics than any other politics. Anyway, we shall call that it for today on the Troopany Show. My name's been James Troopany. Usually is. I don't know why I said now, but there you go. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff Lone Star, and you can find the show Troopany Show on Twitter as well. You can find us at Facebook, The Troopany Show, and also on Patreon, The Troopany Show, where you can treat the Troopany Show free forever for everyone please go look at our sponsors in the indie empire magazine and of course powerslam.tv john where can we find you on twitter uh i am john deathman currently operating under the alias of mr deathmatch i somehow got called the uk's top deathmatch correspondent by mr troopany which i will never probably live up to but i'll pretend to <laughs> and i recently started one of those coffee things which is like an online tip jar. So, hey, if you like death matches, help me eat. There you go. Okay, thank you for being my guest today. We'll be thank back you for next having week. Me. Speaking of violence, uh, the, this week's Telling Stories continues the story of Mima Shimoda and Etsukumita, the LCO, one of the most violent tag teams in professional wrestling history. They were glorious in their hatred of other people. Have a look at them, check them out. You should go look at those videos online because they're really, really cool. We'll be back next week. I will see you soon. Take care. Bye.
Are you looking for the newest and hottest in the world of pro wrestling? Then check out the amazing action on powerslam.tv, the biggest indie pro wrestling channel in the world. Get over 6,000 hours of the best events from over 150 of your favorite promotions from 20 different countries around the globe. Brands like Progress Wrestling, Evolve Wrestling, Combat Zone, Defy, PCW Ultra, PWX, Over the Top, Shine, and hundreds of others with fresh content added every day for only $5.99 per month. Get your free trial today at powerslam.tv.